Hi, everyone. I'm Neil Scott. Welcome to Starcatcher, the podcast. True stories from Hollywood's golden age, as told by the man who was there when they said it. John Frederick. He's a distinguished Hollywood producer who has some 50 films and documentaries to his credit and is the author of a new book by the same name, Starcatcher, A True Life Hollywood Fantasy, which is available at Amazon and wherever best-selling books are sold. In your book, Starcatcher, you reminisce about time spent with one of the major Hollywood legends, the iconic John Wayne, who starred in close to 200 movies and television productions in an illustrious career. He died back in 1979 at the age of 72. But before we talk about the Duke, let's talk about John Frederick. Tell me what brought you to Hollywood. I always had Hollywood in my mind. In, in high school, I guess my junior year, I mentioned to everybody in the class that I was going to go to Hollywood and make movies. Someone reminded me of that as a high school reunion, and I, I didn't remember it. I was besotted almost with radio and books and movies, and I love movies most of all. I had a really good job with the Navy. I had been in the Navy for eight years and had gone from being a regular line officer to being a public information specialist. And I was in the Pentagon then. That was 1968. And that was not a good year to be in the Pentagon for anybody. Golly, I got a call from the detailer. He was the assignment guy in the Office of Information. And he said, if you can get ready in two days, I got a great job for you. There's somebody actually who gotten drunk, missed ship's movement, and then he topped that by driving his car off the pier at the next port. So he was persona non grata. And so I, of all people, was picked to take his place. So I had that job. I was public affairs officer for the second fleet and the NATO striking fleet. So we traveled to Europe. We traveled to the Caribbean. We were all over the place. We were the contingency task force for Cuba. And I was lieutenant in a commander's billet, which is almost a guaranteed promotion. Anyway, I loved that job. My predecessor had really screwed up. So I was like, oh, I was like the savior or something. They really thought I was hot stuff. We'll go to Europe in the summer, a big NATO exercise off Norway. Really, really fantastic stuff. The detailer, the guy who sent me there, called me up. We were in port in Norfolk, and he called me and said, "Um, I got to have your job. I'm up for commander, and I I can't get promoted unless I go to Vietnam. I don't want to go to Vietnam. And I gotta, I gotta have a fleet job, and there's only four of them, and, and you got the one that I could, I, I gotta have, I gotta have your job. You can have anything you want, anything. So I said, well, give me a few minutes. And I hung up, and I looked, where would I go? Well, I looked up, and you know, there were only maybe 150 of us, not many, and we would, okay, well, Naples, hmm, yeah, Brussels, well, Frankfurt, oh, well, well, well. Uh, Japan, uh, Hawaii, uh, and I I kept looking. I, hmm, there's an office in Hollywood. So I called him back and I said, Hollywood, I want to go to Hollywood. He said, you can't go to Hollywood. I just filled the billet there. You just, anywhere else but Hollywood. And I thought a minute, I said, Hollywood or nothing. So anyway, I ended up going to Hollywood, which is where I'd always wanted to be. And I was a movie and television officer there. I did that. And due to a uh, bit of a drinking problem, I ended up leaving the service after 10 years. And that was really to uh, to save my neck, as it turned out. I did some scuffling after that. Long and the short of it, I ended up in uh, San Diego working for the Navy Rehab down there. Then I wound that up and was back in Hollywood. And all of the jobs that I'd been promised 
never happened. Enter Harry Flynn, prominent Hollywood director, and he sets you up with a movie starring Dick Van Dyke. We made a movie down there. I mean, he directed it, and Dick Van Dyke was in it. That began to tell me a little bit that I could do this kind of thing. I had one other opportunity. I made a film for the Navy. It was the history of naval aviation. Jim Drury, who was very hot at the time, was uh, they're doing Virginian still. He appeared in one of them, and we had a second one, and Rod Serling narrated that one. I began to get that I could get it, that I, I knew what I was doing a little bit. And, of course, when I had been asked for one of the first, the first assignments as a civilian, uh, I got a call from somebody, and I said, do you know anything about making movies? And I said, I know everything about making movies. That was a bit of an overstatement. It was a lie, actually. It was a lie. But, but I did get a chance in working on a movie that Glenn Ford ended up narrating called Operation Readiness. It had like 30,000 feet of film and no story. So I got my uh, education there and then went on to uh, do those naval history things and then the thing with Van Dyke. Well, by this time, uh, Harry Flynn, who directed that movie in San Diego, asked me to join his unit, which was called the Combat Camera Group, and it was a natural for me. One day, Harry called me, and I was actually, you know, pounding the beat looking for a job, and uh, he said, uh, we're going to get John Wayne to narrate a movie called uh, Home for the Stevies. Are you interested? Am I interested? Hmm, well, Harry, it turned out, was a parishioner at St. Pat's, I think it is, a church in the valley. And, and the Navy had been trying to get a hold of John Wayne and couldn't get through. You can't. You know, the stars are protected. And if you want John Wayne to be in your movie and you ask his agent, he's going to tell you, yes, all right, it'll be $2 million. Or the publicist who will just ignore what you're trying to do unless you were, well, it would have to be a perfect project. And and. The publicists, that's not what they, uh, they, they don't want to do that kind of thing. They don't want to, you know, they just don't. They don't like to give away John Wayne free. So anyway, we had an opportunity then. There were people going to come from the Pentagon. Uh, the CBs, of course, I knew the story. The movie John Wayne made in 1944. By this time, I, I, I knew what I was doing a bit. Once Harry Flynn was able to make contact with John Wayne, there was that initial meeting. John... Tell me about that first meeting with the Duke. We arranged to meet at his home in Bayfront, Newport Beach. I met Harry there. We had lunch, and then we went out. We had the 1 o'clock, and these, uh, it was a fairly large group. Their admiral came from uh, D.C. and a bunch of high-rated civilians, and the uh, government's paying the way, so as many people could sponge on it as we could, you get the opportunity to meet with John Wayne. I mean, who isn't going to want to do that, so... More people showed up than needed to be there. So I thought, my God, well, you know, I'll, I'll never get to talk to him. And so everybody sat around. By this time, I'm way, I'm halfway out, out the door almost. I'm so far behind everybody else or back in the back row. And so we put on the movie. He had a screen in his living room there. It was only on about a minute and a half. I had a really great opening. I, I, I hope I can remember it. Time is the enemy. Machines are built to serve, not, not to endure. They vanish silently, fading and gone, as if they had not been at all. Uh, something about a memory and time is the enemy. And I heard him swear, and I thought, uh-oh, but he didn't swear that way. He said, expletive, expletive, that's 
great in that John Wayne voice, you know. So throughout the movie, he was yelling at the skin, I'm yelling, but uh, applauding what we were doing. And it ended and uh, he was extremely pleased. He really thought it was great. And he said that several times in the, in the course of the movie. So the movie's over, the lights go up and an admiral, the admiral had come from uh, the CB headquarters in DC said, uh, we, gosh, we really just you know, really would like you to make this movie home for the CBs. I didn't realize they had a script already. The script had been written for anybody, not for John Wayne. And that was to prove a problem later. But uh, right then, uh, Wayne said, well, I'll do it for you. I'll do it for you. I'll do it if it's a bad one or a good one. But that guy over there who wrote that movie, he can do it. Give him the power. Watch him now. Watch him close. But give him the power. He knows how to do it. And all of a sudden, from the rear rank, I was all of a sudden sitting right next to John Wayne. And so that's how it started. What do you remember about being at John Wayne's home? I could see the wild goose outside. Later on, he gave us a tour of his, he called it his 150-yard Hall of Fame thing with all his trophies and all his everything. And it wasn't a mansion, really, although it was on the on the beach. And we could see out the kitchen, we could see uh, the wild goose, that, that boat of his. And he was going to go up to um, Friday Harbor, uh, the Straits of San Juan. He did that every year. And then in, in the... Um, in the winter, he'd go down to Mexico. So they, they had some of them, those great trips on the Wild Goose. John, let's talk about the script that you inherited and the changes that had to be made. We began to go to the house, and by this time they'd sent me the script. And what I wanted to do with the script was burn it. It was a bureaucratic hack job uh, written by now. I don't, there are many, many fine civil servants. But you won't find too many screenwriters that are employed by the government. It just is that way. And and this thing did made no account whatever that it was John Wayne we were talking about. It had the the talent, let's call them, the talent standing in a bowling alley and and commenting about the recreation this and then he in the middle of a PX and there are customers all around him and you know so forth and so forth. none of that. That's not John Wayne stuff. I, I told him, I said, I don't know if I can fix this. And actually, I told Wayne the same thing. This is, uh, they've written this thing, and here it is. And so he took a look at it. And I remembered, he said, I'll do it for you if it's a good one or a bad one. And we had a lot of work to do to make it a good one. And so I went down there probably five or six times, sometimes with Harry Flynn, but sometimes by myself. Uh, I think we went, we took a cameraman down and the sound guy once. and we would work on the script. Well, there was quite a bit of work to do there. And I, I told him, I said, let me let me take a whack at it first. And so I, I did a lot of changes. I, tr I really tried to get the brass in Washington to have John Wayne do a history of the Seabees and ditch this dumb movie, which was only about the Navy Seabee uh, centers. And I said, I'll, I'll write the opening. I wanted to give him a good opening. We'll put the history of the CBs in the opening and so forth. And 
I think at some point after the first visit that uh, he and I both got the idea that no matter what I did, we're trying to make a chocolate-covered turd out of a turd here. They insist on the format that's in there. We're not going to be able to do what we want to do. And he was okay with that. He already committed to doing it. And so I, I was able then over quite a long period to talk about other things. And uh, this was one of the great benefits of working the movies around people like that is that I got close enough, you know, between takes and between this and between that. And these were, we, we would talk about John Ford and he'd talk, and I asked him questions. What about this? I said, what, what's the hardest thing for you? What was that? It's 50 years. What was the hardest thing? And I knew his movie history because I know movies. And what about the movies with Randolph Scott and Marlena Dietrich and, and the John Ford movies? And how about your early movies? He had been assigned to, to be in a picture called The Big Trail, which was supposed to be a huge breakthrough in movies because they had 35 and 70 millimeter. It was like Todd A.O. and Cinemascope were later, but the technology just wasn't there, and and theaters had to redo their sound systems, and so the picture bombed. It had a first-class Hall of Fame director, Raoul Walsh, who's done a whole lot of things like White Heat with Cagney and Bogart pictures by the score, and it, it just didn't play. What was John Wayne like, up close and personal? His on-camera persona in many of his movies was definitely a tough guy and macho. Was he that way in real life? I found him to be extremely sensitive. I mean, around men, he was kind of competitive. But when there was a child or a woman, he became courtly. He became Uncle John or Uncle Duke, I guess. And he wanted me to call him Duke, but I could only call him Mr. Wayne. I, my dad wouldn't have liked me calling him Duke. So anyway, we get to meet each other and see each other, and he was um, he was extremely friendly and was very nice to me. At least we had that. We had we we did it. We we got it as good as we could get it. Back in I believe it was 1944, John Wayne did a movie called The Fighting Seabees. It was a war film where he played the role of Lieutenant Commander Wedge Donovan. It was a fictionalized account of the creation of the Seabees. And it was a movie that actually was nominated for an Academy Award that year. We got to talking about that, too. <laughs> Susan Hayward was his co-star. He said, that new movie dame, Susan Hayward, she was beating me to every island, for God's sake. I was supposed to be the guy on the beachhead. And so, and he said, also, yeah, he said, uh, he died in the movie, which is one of the very few movies... Um, he ever died in. I can remember another one from that era called Wake of the Red Witch, and he died in that one. But he, he, Wayne, Wayne was not supposed to die. That was it. But of course, he died a hero. And he had one thing he was telling. He says, uh, "You remember, uh, you remember Bill Frawley? Uh, he was, and I love Lucy. You remember him?" I said, "Yes, sir." Well, yeah. Uh, well, this scene, see, we shot at MOS. Well. MOS goes back to the time when the German emigres coming to the movie business and fleeing Hitler, uh, Billy Wilder and a whole bunch of people like that. MOS they, was knit out sound, and that is still used in, in, uh, in direction on a script. MOS, knit out sound. So anyway, it's an MOS scene. There's Bill Frawley, and he's dying, see? And I go over to him, and there's a two-shot, just him and me. 
but you can't really read his lips and you can't see me. I, I'm, I'm, they shoot me from the back. And anyway, he looks up at me and says, Duke, take me to a cool saloon. And I thought, God damn, that's, that's, anyway, I went to the, I went to the director and I said, man, did you hear that guy? He said, take me to a cool saloon. He's a buddy and he's dying. Take me to a cool saloon. We got to put that in the picture. And the director said, no. And Wayne got red in the face and he dumped his fist into a callous palm and said, I didn't have the power then. I didn't have the power then. The dumb SOB. And he said, we could have had a great picture. He was still mad about it 45 years later. John, when you were on location shooting Home for the Seabees, it turned out to be a pretty big spectacle. And as the shooting continued, John Wayne was not pleased with the production. We met at uh, Port Wanimi. He got heloed in there, and he had mentioned to everybody concerned he liked people around him. So by all means, um, he, he wanted an audience. And of course, it, everybody turned out. Met the Hilo and all that. Uh, you couldn't. We had, the museum was fairly small, and we couldn't have all the people who wanted in there. And of course, the brass really got in there. They had a few enlisted people and some wives of of uh, officers and wives of master chief or whatever. But basically, he was comfortable. He was comfortable there. What a man like Wayne does, and it's probably true with several stars. He came off that helo and and went into the building and where we had all it set up. We had the setup. We had a little train, a little dolly track there, you know, where you, you know, a very small dolly track, <laughs> you know, that didn't go anywhere. A tracking shot is, you know, is one that moves with the actors and it's done with a little wheeled outfit that uh, is uh, cameras mounted on it and the way it goes. But anyway, he was not happy. First of all, I got to introduce him to my wife and kids. He was just really great. He couldn't have been nicer. Then I kind of stayed out of the way. I wanted to get out of the way because, you know, writers don't expect to be there. And, and there was some feeling that he was not happy with the setup. So we're getting closer, getting closer. The audience is right there. And they're, they're you know, quiet, quiet, quiet on the set, quiet on the set, blah, blah, blah. Wayne took control, that took control of the set. And now he says, Flynn, you can take this picture and da-da-da-da-da, da-da-da. Anyway, he got control right away. I mean, I tell you, uh, everybody's like, <gasps> and they, they, you know, the audience shrank back and so forth. And, and so I decided the best thing to do, the discussion of better part of Valor would be to flee from the scene because he is, you know, he's not happy. I don't want to be involved in that. So I started to go to what is called the head in the Navy, which is just off the set there. And I had my hand out on a door and he said at the top of his voice, isn't there anyone around here who has any power? Where the hell is John Frederick? And I thought, oh my God, another foot and I'd have been safe. But now I had to turn and, and like it was like walking to the last mile. I got to go confront an irate John Wayne. And I go up to him and I said, what's the problem? Ah, he said, this toy train track you got here, that's all wrong. And, you know, rah, rah, rah. So 
okay. I said, well, what if we did this and this and this? And he got his chin with his, you know, got his chin in his hands, you know, and well, yeah, yeah, he said, that'll work. And I walked away and I thought, I have just taken the needle out of the lion's paw. And I thought, my God, who else could do that? Later on, I thought, well, what the hell, I could have said anything, you know. He had already made his point and gotten control. That's the way it went. We spent that day shooting. We had exteriors, interiors. We had, and he, he did some directing himself. We had a scene where I had him, the opening had him like standing right next to, right in front of a bulldozer. The, you could see the bulldozer and you could see him. And he, he said, he'd be a big, probably a great director. He said, fill the frame back there. Move those trucks over here. Move that, that move that tent over there. Move to get them in here. He contributed quite a bit. It was interesting uh, as we sat in his kitchen and there's a bus right next to us of John Ford as a rear admiral. And he had a little stub pencil like golfers use, you know, and he would, uh, he would say things like, yeah, well, he can say that reading the script. Uh, he can do that line. Yeah, he can say that he, he can do it. And I realized He's talking about himself. He kind of, he's kind of like the Royals. He, he talks about himself in the third person. Uh, he did say once, no, he wouldn't say that, you know. And then he put some lines in. And, of course, I had a lot of my lines in, in too. And uh, so it was always a pleasure to find out, oh, yeah, that's a good one. I like that. I can say that. He'd stick that pencil point in his mouth just like a little kid. And it was something to see. In your book, Starcatcher, A True Life Hollywood Fantasy, you have some incredible behind-the-scenes stories and quotes that are truly amazing. Tell me something about John Wayne that perhaps most people don't know. He actually wore glasses to read the script and to see things. But if he saw someone approach him with a camera when he was wearing glasses, he says, shoot that picture and I'll break that camera, <laughs> or words to that effect. So there was no concentrating on that particular, he just, uh, you know, he did not want to be a photograph taken that way. But he had a little problem, um, you know, with the vision that was a little outside of his realm there. And at the end of it, I took my wife and kids up to him and, and introduced them. And he looks at me and says, how long were they here? And he said, oh, they've been here for hours. And he went, put his hand over his mouth because he had uttered, shall we say, a few oaths that my wife and children would almost certainly have heard, and he was very aware, but he didn't see them, of course. He had his glasses off, in other words. But he was, as I say, very courtly to children. Of course, he was, he was a smash. What are you going to say? There is also a story, John, that you tell about the Duke and a half bottle of tequila. He had been consuming a bottle of commemorativo between takes. Nothing major, just had a few drinks. Instead of going by helicopter, his motorhome had come up. And so I'm escorting him out to the motorhome and he hands me the bottle of tequila. And he said, here, take this. I never have alcohol in any vehicle I'm riding in or driving or riding in. And I said, but, but you're in the motorhome, you're in the back. He said, I don't care. I just won't have it around. I, of course, wasn't drinking by then, 
And so I didn't really want half a bottle of tequila, but it was, I can tell you, very commonerativo, very good stuff. My son has it and took it and still has that bottle. And I said, look, we can sell that bottle. It's got John Wayne's DNA on it. We can sell that bottle for a fortune. Looking back at that film, John, Home for the Seabees, the very last film production that John Wayne did, what are your thoughts today? It wasn't what I wanted it to be, but it was as good as we could make it. Fifty years later, they show it every day at the CB Museum in Port Wainimi, California. Home for the CBs. And just to be a sport about it, I had a couple photos that were taken of me, some 11 by 14s of me and, uh, and the Duke. And I gave those to the museum, and we had a plaque made up for him. And I gave that to the museum, so... It was unforgettable, and it turned out to be a movie the Navy still uses. As a young Hollywood writer and producer, John, did John Wayne ever offer any advice to you? He told me an awful lot. They were things that were very, very personal. He gave me some good advice. He said, you know, you should have a, you have a journal. I never I never did that. He said, I, I, you guys got to, you're young guys. You keep a journal. I guess I was 42 or something. And I, yeah, I don't, I, I can't remember anything. He said, I can't remember, you know, I can't remember all that stuff. And there, some guy, Wayne Wargo, wants to write a book. And uh, I, I don't know. Uh, I just, I can't, you know, you guys, you're young. You do it. You, you do it. So forth. I remember almost every conversation. I remember uh, I actually... I brought a book there called Shooting Star, and it was written by a man named Maurice Zillatow, who had been a Broadway columnist. And it was a great book about John Wayne. There have been several books, of course, about John Wayne. So I had two of them that I'd purchased, and I was, I was going to have him sign them to my two sons, Randy and Richard. So uh, I got them kind of behind me because I want to, I want to spring it on him. I want, I want to kind of ease into the conversation. And I said... What did you think about the new, that new book, that, uh, that shooting star? What did you think about that? And he had that, mm, he was not happy again. That S.O., that, that, he insulted my mother. And I'm standing about five feet from him, and I have those books behind me, and I keep them there. And now I back away all the way to the front door run out of the car. Later on, I, we kidded about it, and he just said, look, I'd have signed him for you. I'm, I, I, I'd have signed him for you. I mean, he, man, he was something. He was he was a strong man. If he shook your hand, you know you weren't shaking hands with uh, Liberace or somebody. Finally, John, how did the book Starcatcher, a true-life Hollywood fantasy, become a reality from the quotes to the stories to the eventual publication of the book? I had was always, always, always wanting to be around the movie business, and here was my chance. The Navy sent me surely by accident, and I end up here, and I, I end up meeting these people. I began picking up these quotes. As I began to uh, think about quotes, I decided to write the quotes down and then figure out what stories that, you know, how can I fill it in and what can I do? I got a push from my lady friend, Irene, who encouraged me and other people encouraged me. And then I began to really start to put it together. 40 years to live it and about a year and a half to write it and a half a year to edit it. I tell you what, John, these stories, these quotes are fascinating. And, you know, there's a lot more about John Wayne in your book, Starcatcher, True Life Hollywood Fantasies, as well as stories and quotes 
about other luminaries such as Jason Robards, Mickey Rooney, Bob Hope, and many, many more. From the world of movies and TV, sports, plus public and military figures. They're all in this amazing book. And that wraps up this edition of Starcatcher, the podcast, True Stories from Hollywood's Golden Age, as told by the man who was there when they said it, John Frederick, a distinguished Hollywood producer and writer who has some 50 films and documentaries to his credit and is the author of the best-selling book by the same name, Starcatcher, a true-life Hollywood fantasy. It's available at Amazon and wherever popular books are sold. Now, we certainly hope you have enjoyed this podcast. And if you did, well, there's something that you can do for us. Number one, subscribe to our podcast. Number two, leave a review. And number three, by all means, share this with your friends. Until next time, I'm Neil Scott saying, hooray for Hollywood. <laughs>